Welcome to season three of Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. From Pinocchio to the Chronicles of Narnia to Charlotte's Web, classic children's tales have shaped generations of young people. In the first edition of Tending the Heart of Virtue, Dr. Vegan Gorian illuminates the power of classic tales and their impact on the moral imagination. Today, I am pleased to introduce you to you the best living expert on fairy tales, Dr. Vegan Gorian. He is here today to introduce his newly revised second edition of Tending the Heart of Virtue. Vegan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs> I am really excited to dive into discussing your revisions, your second edition of Tending the Heart of Virtue. And uh, true to the mission of this podcast, I promise our listeners that we will be discussing some practical applications that are pertinent to classical education, not only for parents and teachers, but really everyone. Um, Vegan is going to guide us today through some principles and practices that enhance the enjoyment of fairy tales. And... um, First, I want Vegan to talk to us about his new, newly released second edition, um, and even perhaps tell us uh, from the first edition uh, how many copies and how that edition impacted people, um, how many languages maybe it was printed in. I'm not even sure myself. But this new edition, uh, talk to us, Vegan, about why you tackled this project. It's it's got over a hun- over a hundred more pages than the first book, and. I just finished reading it, and I believe it is very much worth buying, even if you own the first copy. So tell us about this this new edition. Well, Adrian, uh, practically from the start, my editor at Oxford, uh, Cynthia Reed, she headed up uh, religion and philosophy at Oxford for many years and retired after she attended to the new chapters of this book. Um, perhaps I exhausted her. Um, but uh, I, uh, from the beginning, we talked about, about the possibility of a, a second book or the expansion of this book. And I'm not lazy. I could have done another book, I suppose. But what I, the conclusion I came to is, is that this book, thematically and in laying down the discussion of the moral imagination and its applicability to uh, children's stories uh, probably could not be replicated. And it's a generation since the book was published. I tend to forget that it was 25 years ago. That's a while. Uh, I think unusual for a book, it's probably sold more in the last five years than it did in the intervening maybe 15 years. So I knew that this this book needed to be republished uh, and enhanced and uh, give people just this one source uh, that they can hold on to. Uh, Yes, and so I I decided to do three new chapters, not a small, almost another book. It really, really is. Yeah, I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah, and I I revised throughout the book because there were certain anachronisms when I was speaking of my children, for example, who who are now adults and who have children of their own. So a new generation, perhaps not acquainted with the book, uh, realization that I couldn't repeat, I couldn't repeat the act, um, and I didn't want to repeat the act. And... uh, recognition that uh, like the recognition of the growth of uh, classical education and homeschooling over the last 15 years certainly 20 years uh, after this book was published just made me decide it it just needed a new presentation and um, I'm hoping that uh, it works that way now 
With regard to numbers of copies, that's hard to know. Um, uh, I know that there are probably uh, 20,000 mm -hmm. out there that have been printed, but I don't know how many on on a Kindle, for example. Sure. Um, that's, that's a lot of books for for an author. Uh, we were so used to seeing bestsellers, but um, a typical academic book might spell, uh, might uh, sell 2,000 over its lifetime. Uh, it, it seems crazy, but that's what academics do. They write books that um, they hope will get in the libraries and and particular people in the academy, and they, they can't hope for much more. This was much broader. Mm -hmm. uh, and it got a lot of attention uh, the, the first time round. So it got a good launch. Mm -hmm. um, as far as translation, yes, it's in Portuguese. It's interesting. Now, Portuguese, uh, but, but uh, published and translated in Brazil, where there is a, a kind of a movement uh, akin to ours in, in classical ed. The people yeah. who published this uh, came out of the teaching background uh, and translated and published it. They've been to some of our meetings here in the States. It's not, it, it, it's, a, it's a part of a larger uh, worldwide phenomenon. I have a graduate student finishing his doctorate in classics at Oxford who uh, is fluent in about six languages, ancient and modern. He travels about and um, Eastern Europe may be ahead of Western Europe as far as uh, returning to the classical model, and he's been involved with it. So um, the second place that it's, I don't know that the translation has, is out. I, don't, I doubt it because they'll probably send me copies, is in Romania. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah, they wanted to publish this not long after the fall of the Iron Curtain, really. Um, but they ran out of money. I was in contact with them. I don't know if it's the same people uh, that had intended to publish it uh, back then, but one of my other books is also published in Romanian, and that's that's my my book uh, on spiritual. One of my two books on spirituality of gardening, inheriting paradox. That's been published in Romanian, Russian and more recently, Korean. And that book is old, too. That book's over 20 years old now. Yeah, yeah, so, I've read that one, too. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, it just made sense to represent, to present this book in a new, uh, for, for another generation and uh, in an attractive way. And I think they've done a beautiful job as far as the cover design is. Oh, it's beautiful. Yes. It's very easy to read. Uh, the font is great. It's, it's laid out beautifully. I also really love in your table of contents. I noticed right away the, um, the addition of beauty and goodness, um, to these chapters that you've added. And I think those are really important. They're the transcendentals, so much of the buzzwords that people don't really know what they mean in classical education. But I feel that in this book, you have tackled what beauty and goodness mean so well that any teacher who doesn't know how to define them in a classical school needs to read this book because it will help them understand what beauty and goodness really mean and how pertinent they are to education. Yeah, well, one of the reasons why perhaps uh, it gives it better understanding than when these uh, transcendentals are discussed in philosophical or theological texts is that the narrative carries carries the transcendental that's it's right not, it's not it's not a, a, a an ab abstract uh, a way of speaking of the transcendentals the other reason why i did it was because i knew it would attract attention of the readers that are, would be in, in, interested in the book it's not to say that i had to go and dig up things. There were plenty, plenty of uh, uh, on the plate that I could uh, explore for those concepts. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, diving into some of your additions, I, I think we should at least tell our listeners um, which stories you have added 
um, into into this. Do you want to tell what they are? Or do you want me to to tell? Why don't you tell it? Okay, so the the three chapters that have been added um, include the Nightingale and the Ugly Duckling by Hans Christian Andersen. Under the what under the title of, uh, of the Triumph, the Triumph of, Beauty. of Beauty in mm -hmm. the Nightingale and the Ugly Duckling. Very profound chapters. Each one of these is so profound. And then uh, chapter eight, The Goodness of Goodness, The Grimm's Cinderella and John Ruskin's The King of the Golden River, which I'm thrilled that you added because so few people know about that fairy tale. But those of us who use a Charlotte Mason Ambleside online curriculum, which many of our listeners know that I'm a fan of that, that is one of the books in their curriculum program. And then chapter nine, Obedience and the Path to Perfection in George MacDonald's The Wise Woman, A Double Story. And chapter nine about the wise woman is worth its weight in gold to buy this book. It is so profound. In fact, I really had a hard time when I was trying to figure out, do we want to talk about one of these in particular? They're all so great, but the wise woman is so profound in the way that vegan, the way that you explained it. I have read this story three or four times and I just had to read it again. Well, side by side with what with what you wrote. And the way you unpack it is so spiritually moving and so profound that I saw and felt emotions and ideas that I didn't the first three times I read it. That's and when you and when you get to the end of your um, explanation of what what why what elements you are seeing in the wise woman, I was crying. This book led me to tears and I thought, wow, this is so important. And I do think the wise woman is perhaps one of the most important fairy tales that exists. And reading your chapter made me believe that even more. And I would encourage everyone to buy this book, even if it's just for that chapter, because you unpack it so well and so profound. Um, and it's not so that as a parent or teacher, you can sit at the end of this book story and tell your child what it means. But it's more so that you know how to approach the story as a, as a sacred fairy tale, really. It is like a scripture. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about that. You, you go into talking about it being like a parable. Well, let me, let me first say something about the, the three chapters as a whole, and then I'll sure. go into uh, I can tell you that, and I told you, I think, over the phone not long ago, that this chapter took two or three years to write. I've been through a number of drafts. I gave uh, one version of it uh, at the C.S. Lewis Society at, in Oxford, um, um, and it changed considerably s since that presentation. I was not happy with it. Um, this is not an easy story to discuss. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's plotted out by McDonald. Only a genius could have done what he did in this story. Um, and of course, uh, the critics, by and large, modern critics, think that he lost it in this one, and that it's not a, a story worth uh, talking about. Maurice Sendak being one of them, but there are a goodly number of others that I've come across. It's not received well. On the other hand, Lewis uh, thought it was one of the, the five or six best fantasies that uh, that McDonald produced. So there are some people who had the eyes to see. I, I think th that uh, in part, the eyes to see have to be defined as theological eyes. So maybe I had an advantage in, in being a theologian and a and an ethicist. Uh, the literary critics. Uh, in our day, uh, are more interested in proving one ideology of another by bringing a te text, presenting you with a text, than they are with investigating the content of that story in its integrity. And it's a, an awful shame that that's happening in the universities, but it's almost universal in the universities. Now, uh, go back to just for a moment to the other chapter as well. 
The Triumph of Beauty brings together uh, two of Anderson's stories. And I, when I look at this, I see that Anderson is represented more than any author in, in, in these chapters, which, which, um, which proves to me something that was stated to me at a World Council of Churches conference uh, in, in South Africa, where they isolated a, a number of people, mostly theologians, for reasons which I won't get into. But I ended up being the um, master of ceremonies for a talent show. Get this: a talent show comprised of theologians. Um, why they chose me, I don't know. But I know that I had befriended a, a female um, theologian, Danish. And she came up to me and she said, Begin, I don't know what to do. I don't have any, I, I can't sing, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, well, do you, do you know Hans Christian Andersen? And her answer was, he is the wise man. And I carry his book everywhere I go. She carries... Anderson Wither around the world. I love it. So so maybe 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 it's not accidental that I I discuss more of I think there are five of his stories in the book maybe. I think it um, is five. Yeah, Little Mermaid, The Snow Queen, five. Yeah. Nightingale, Ugly Duckling. Yeah, maybe it's four. Yeah. The, now, the, the the Nightingale is easy for the topic of beauty because uh, even uh, literary critics uh, regard it firstly as one of his best stories it's been done made into a ballet um it's easy because uh they themselves regard this as a kind of a small uh, uh manifesto on aesthetics um he teaches us aesthetics um so, so they also uh, come to the conclusion that it's about a beauty and his, the, the romantics uh, version of this. Uh, clearly, he was a romantic and he favored nature above artifact. Um, there are faults to be seen in s such a, a view on the world, but there are great strengths as well. And he takes advantage of his strengths in writing The Nightingale. And it's really a story about how beauty can transform our world, how beauty can bring about justice in the world, and how beauty can redeem our souls. Um, that's easy. Now, what about the ugly duckling? Why would I put that there? People would scratch their heads. Well, it's about the plight of the uh, underdog. Uh, uh, it's about bullying and so all these things. And it's true. Those are themes within the story. There, there, he has concerns there. Um, one of the reasons why people probably uh, do not conclude that it's about beauty is because I don't know of a version of a picture book, Nightingale, a version of it. I mean, of the ugly duckling. Duckling. It doesn't cut out about a third of the text. Right. Important moments in the text. But here I wanted to show how a love of beauty ma makes one beautiful. Now, uh, it's a metaphor in effect. The point I make is, is that Anderson's story about transformation is not like most fairy tales. It's not magic. You could argue that it's genetics. The ugly duckling was never a, a duckling. He was always a swan. And so it, in time he would... Uh, become an adult swan, but he tells a story so beautifully that um, you, you don't think about that. Um, so what, what, it is, what is it about the ugly duckling? Well, from the start, he has a love for beauty or he's, he's surrounded by beauty. And in the end, it's, it's his attraction to these beautiful birds, these white, beautiful birds which are so superior to him, he thinks, but he would he would even give his life in order to be with them, just for a moment. Yeah, it's his love of beauty. It's beautiful. 
and it and it means it and it presents transformation in a way that I don't think many fairy tales do. You ju you just don't think about the fact that he was inevitably going to become uh, a swan. You you think that something happened inside of him that changed him into a swan, and what was that? It was the love of beauty. Um, the, well, I would I want to say a few things to that. The Nightingale, when I read it because I'm immersed in this world of classical education where we're all struggling and talking about the use of technology in schools and this AI chat. And I, and when I, when I re-listened to, um, to the, uh, the story of the Nightingale, I have an audio book of it, beautiful, well done. And as I was listening to it, I was really, really hit uh, strongly by the message being pertinent for middle school, high school students, yes. it, it, I, I really believe strongly that this this fairy tale needs to be read and discussed as a seminar in middle yes. school and high school classes because it's so relevant to the the problems we're having today. And um, and now that you even talk about it being uh, a model for aesthetics, I'm thinking, wow, it actually from a fairy tale perspective could even help a teacher to understand how important it is for her to step back or him to step back and look at the aesthetics of his classroom, of the classroom, how it's decorated even. Yeah. Yeah. Like, are you bringing in living things from outside to decorate your classroom like plants and beautiful things that are outside? Or are you just slapping up posters on your walls? <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, so that that story, the Nightingale, I think is the romantic. You, the romantic in uh, Anderson triumphs in this story. It really does, and I want our listeners to know as well that one of the additions you've put in this book, in the back, is a bibliography of a short list of anthologies, which I think is also very important because we want to read the translations that are the better translations of these stories. And you give us a really nice list of anthologies that offer that. Yes. And that list was not in the first edition. Mm, was it or wasn't? I, I couldn't find it. <laughs> I well, looked, what, I couldn't, well, I couldn't the, find the it. annotated bibliographical essay, I call it, is mm -hmm. not exhaustive. Um, uh, I wanted to present, uh, apart from that, literal bibliography of uh, English English texts, translations, um, and presentations of also fairy tales in the uh, in, in English. I wanted to uh, give the reader an opportunity to consider one or two or maybe even three other stories in the canon mm -hmm. under each of these topics uh, in the ch as chapter chapters. Uh, th there are topics, so. Yeah, uh, you did that, and that, that I love that you did that. I think that was really great, and I love that you brought up the little lame prince in mm -hmm. that as well. Um, yeah. But I'm talking specifically about a, a short list of anthologies. You yeah. listed one, two, three, yeah. four, five, that I'm like, this list should be every classroom and every home in America needs to have these five anthologies. In yeah, home, understand. It's not, it's not exhaustive. <laughs> these are these are these. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, there there are several good translations of uh, the complete Anderson. There are mm -hmm. uh, several translations. Uh, maybe a, a not complete is is as Jack Zipes's volume, but um, and then and then yeah, there are some others. Uh, the Victorian uh, fairy tale book edited by Michael Patrick Hearn. That's mm -hmm. a good collection. So that's a place to start. Yep. Say so you, you you can go further if you want, but that's a place to start. Mm -hmm. And then let's get into your next edition with uh, Cinderella, which yeah. again I read this and my mind was blown. I was seeing so many things. Now I'm like, I need to read the Cinderella the the right version and. Yeah. Uh, you discuss in there a beautiful an illustration um, that I went looking for the illustration online because I desperately wanted to see the illustration of of uh, the the door where Cinderella the tree is growing. Yes, out, outside. See outside. Yeah, door. yeah, that was profound. Did you find uh, it? I, I I did find the picture. Yeah, beautiful. 
beautiful. And I think that your uh, explanation of why that illustration mattered and what message it was bringing into the story was very, very profound. And I'm sad to say I haven't read a good version of Cinderella yet, but that's one of the things I'm going to do next. <laughs> one of my arguments in, uh, in, in uh, so the, the, the chapter, uh, uh, good, good, the goodness of goodness, I, I start with uh, uh, Cinderella, the Grimm's, not Peralt's version, which correct. W most of most of Amer most Americans are more familiar with because D Disney fundamentally based bases all his ver all the versions of Cinderella that they've presented, whether uh, animated or uh, uh, real life character uh, actors, on on the Peralt version, which is a lovely story, but it it it's it. It, it, the Grimm's is different than it, and much more theologically informed. They were really, uh, they were really masters of the Bible too, and so um, that's why perhaps you were surprised that all the allusions to biblical stories, mm -hmm. in particular, that um, they make uh, in in their version of Cinderella. Yeah, the, it's brilliant. The, the other thing I, I, I mentioned in my, my preface is, uh, I think it's the preface, where I say that I, um, there's an absence of the Grimm's in this book. Uh, in a way, there is. Uh, accidentally, I think the Grimm's stories are, the best of them are really genius. I do discuss at some length Snow White in the annotated bibliography in a way that I think people probably have not come upon interpretation as the way I give it. But in the in terms of Cinderella, no, that's that may be the richest of their fairy tales in point of fact. Although there are challengers, uh, Snow White may be one of them, but the one that's really mind-boggling is called the juniper tree. Mm -hmm. And most would dismiss the juniper tree as senselessly uh, bloody, uh, violent, and so forth. But it's a Eucharistic tale, deeply Eucharistic tale. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think I, one I, of the... I've not used it with teachers because... Uh, uh, they, it would be hard to bring into most secular classrooms without without sure. exploring it theologically in a way would, which would be telling. <laughs> mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. I think one of the the um, one of the things I recently I was just rereading your rallying the really human things again. I have many tabs in this book, and there was a quote in here um, from G.K. Chesterton about, uh, and you, you'll probably know it better than I do, but he's, essentially he's saying adults don't want judgment. They want mercy. So we like the stories where it's all a happy ending, but children are fine with judgment and mercy yeah. <laughs> and they don't have a problem with it and they want justice. <laughs> Cinderella and, is, is, about ju is about judgment finally. Yeah. And so these, these Grimm's tales really give us more of a bigger picture representing the true the truth of Christ and our 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 redemption and then the last judgment and so those are really uh some of the messages in the grim and that and that illustration you mentioned uh, uh was inspired by uh another Grimm's brother who did, a, did an illustration yeah and that brother knew his brothers i assume and what 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 happens in that in that illustration is that you find three crosses. The, 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 not only is the cross in, in this story, but the Trinity is in this story. And yeah, you're not going to find people talking about that. I can, I can assure you that the, the, the authorities on Cinderella, um, the pe people who rule over our fairy tales today, that's the last thing they're going to bring up, usually. Yeah, I don't you, know whether they don't have eyes to see, or whether they have eyes to see and they don't want to talk about it. It's yeah, hard to it, 
it's it's beautiful. It's really beautiful what you you say about this. I want to um, talk a little bit about what you are anticipating parents and teachers um, to get out to get out of this book to get out of the new edition. What are you anticipating uh, that they'll get out of it, and how 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 you're hoping they receive it? Well, first of all, I would say that the canon is in jeopardy. Um, and only classical schools and homeschoolers are re are 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 being faithful to a certain extent with the great canon of uh, liter literature in, in in our culture. You know, Dickens when he saw that these stories were being bodlerized and used for other purposes, like for example, temperance. Um, he was outraged that this was happening. Um, and he screamed out in an essay, without these stories, England would not be. And um, of course, Dickens wrote fairy tales, really. Many of his novels are really fairy tales. Uh, That's true. Uh, just, just a fact, it was shaped by the fairy tales, as were a number of... Uh, the writers represented in, in in the in the volume, Hans Christian Andersen's Christianity may have been uh, off center. Some would say he wasn't even a Christian, but he knew the Bible back and forth. He was raised in poverty. The only book he had to read was the Bible, so he knew it. Um, the same goes for John Ruskin in uh, the King of the Golden River. I mean, his mother had him memorizing passages every day of every week right through his oxford years and he wrote that story at the age of what was he i guess 21 I guess it, yeah say yeah he didn't like the story he never liked the story it was his wife uh and in combination with his father which brought it out 10 years after he had written it and it is one of the first and one of the greatest victorian fairy tales yeah so there again, his uh, biblical imagination was at work, full force in that story. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Uh, what was um, the, no, uh, you, you had a question. I, I ran away from the question. It's okay, what? about how you anticipate parents and teachers receiving your book. Oh, okay. All right, let me talk a little bit about that. First of all, yes, it has to do with um, bringing the canon back with full force. Hmm. Um, I think that even among classical schooling people, there is uh, a bias. Uh, well, uh, fairy tales, you know, they're outlived, et cetera, et cetera. Or they don't know the fairy tales because all they've seen is the bottlerized versions of them. Right. I, I would say that uh, the fairy tales are, as imp are important to our culture as are uh, the Greek myths, Homer, uh, 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 the Greek myths, the, the Bible, Old and New Testaments are as important. Uh, they, they, fairy tales belong there also. They're, in a sense, primal. Even, even if the Grimm's uh, uh, collected them and changed them uh, through their uh, Christian imagination. There, there. You know, you find Cinderella in China, in Africa. Okay, um, they, they, these belong to humanity, really, and and to to uh, short shrift them and claim that you're doing classical schooling is a mistake, a bad mistake. If it I happens, agree. You, you, they, many more ought to be read. Mm -hmm. I know they're not being read, so I just this book is limited. But I, I, I tried to instruct people as to how deep, how uh, profound these stories can be, and how essential even to our culture they are. So, yeah, I agree, and I think another, um, I think, well, something I've noticed that I'm concerned about with. Uh, teachers and parents who are beginning to realize we need to be reading fairy tales, and they're they're doing it. 
But the concern I have is some of the um, questions I've seen on Facebook that moms will put or uh, even walking in a classroom and seeing teachers overanalyze, overteach the fairy tale instead of letting it just do what it does. Um, yeah. One of the quotes I love uh, in George McDonald, George McDonald's fantastic imagination, he talks about basically how to approach fairy tales, mm -hmm. like a sonata, he says. But he also says, the greatest forces lie in the region of the uncomprehended. Just let the fairy tale be. Let it be. You don't have to comprehend all of it. What you will notice is that when you read the fairy tale um, and you enjoy it for what for the musicality of what it is, it's going to do its work in the soul of you, the teacher or parent, and the child. Um, oh, and so let me, let me go ahead. Children are, children are more receptive to the musicality than adults largely because adults want want to uh, work with abstractions and principles or whatever. Children aren't interested in abstractions and principles that it's, concrete it's, actions by characters that they can identify with. It's true. Um, a couple of concerns I've had is um, that I want to talk to you about, because you do address them in your book through uh, Maurice Sendak's interpretation um, and of, I think it was uh, his interpretation of the Pinocchio. wise woman and Pinocchio, right? Yeah, both of them. And when you explained his interpretation, I was like, that's a pretty common problem that I see in parents and teachers. And I think that it's because they don't understand the nature of a fairy tale, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know how to approach it. They don't understand. The, you should the, understand a fairy tale. He's even written a good one. He I'm, should. I, he should. I, where the wild things are will stand as a classic for centuries. Yeah. I love what you said in the book, how you're like, I don't even understand how he could have a problem with the wise woman being scary when he wrote the book, Where the Wild Things Are. <laughs> exactly. Precisely. Like, doesn't make any sense, but there it is. That's a work but of genius. The, 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 I, 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 <laughs> that book, Sendak's book, has to be read out loud, and a parent has to do it with authority, because the parents are behind the story, aren't they? Yes. Thank you for saying that. And okay, so this is what what I I love that you're saying the parent needs to be the authority, needs to stand behind it. Because one of the posts I saw on Facebook, and it was a long thread, I don't know, hundreds of comments. This this mother had posted, and she was obviously crying out for some help because she wanted to enjoy the princess and the goblin, but she said that she and her children were bored reading the princess and the goblin. And I thought, okay, I see this problem. How do we how do we help a parent like that who says we're bored with the princess and the goblin? I I don't I never was bored with it. But I'm wondering what's the problem we're dealing with? What's the problem we're dealing with with that? Is it because they're watching too much TV and they're they're listening to the nightingale that's the 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 machine? <laughs> you know? I, I suspect, well, I, I just said it. I think the parent was bo bored. And uh, if the parent read to the children or with the children. Um, it may have rubbed off on them. Uh, Maybe that's right. one part of it. The other, the other part certainly could could be that the moral imagination has not been attended to by, uh, by the time they get to reading the Princess and the Goblin. I can tell you that I've written an essay on mystery and sacrament in George MacDonald, which is another analysis of the Princess and the Goblin that. Of only pieces of which are in the, the, the book's chapter. And I argue that um, the book is profoundly, is profoundly about baptism, structured on baptism. There's an anointment with oil in that story. There's an immersion in the font in that story. And at the end, there's an iconographic element where... Curdie and the princess have joined her father, the king, on a hilltop as the warders come rushing out of the uh, out of the house in which she lived. And uh, of course, that happened because of the goblins beneath. Okay, so uh, as they're standing there, the bright light 
of this orb uh, appears. It's 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 the grand great great grandmother's orb, um, and and out of that orb flies a dove, a white pigeon, and circles them. Well, that's a that's an iconographic image of baptism. If you go to the earliest icons of baptism, it's it's exactly the same. You have an orb, part of an orb representing the Trinity. Sometimes you have three bolts of light coming out of it, just sometimes one. And riding on that light is the dove that descends upon the head of Christ or hovers above the head of Christ. He's taken that right out, out of ancient iconography of the church. Not one interpretation of that story that I've read Go, goes even near to that. I find it confounding, utterly confounding, because he was he was very, very much, well, he knew artists to begin with, the Rossettis and et cetera, but, but he also spent much of his life in, England, in Italy because of his health. Where do you think he went for recreation? He went to museums, didn't he? He saw these images. It's amazing. Uh, I, will t I will tell you that the, the journal I sent it to rejected it. Um, it's a journal that I know the editors of. Um, I don't know who was behind rejecting it, but it was silly. The, the notes that I got back is to, to the people who were asked to read it. But it doesn't matter because it's going to be the preface or going to be the introduction to the second printing of The Princess and the Goblin that that uh, Memoria Press is going to do. Uh, I told uh, Tanya Charlton, why are you making, I mean, th this isn't a typical introduction. I'm not discussing the story as a whole. She said, it's even better that way. Um, and it'll appear in a collection like the one rallying the really human things, which by the way is being held hostage. ISI did a reprinting a couple of years ago, then they sold all of, all of their books to Regnery, and the copies are in boxes in Chicago warehouse, and they've been there for a year and a half now. They will be, they, whether, whether the copies of Rallying the Human Things will be found or not, I have no idea, but if you go on the internet, uh, you're going to pay $100 for a copy of that book, but Memoria Press, if, if, if Regnery is willing, will buy the rights and it'll, they'll publish it. But this is crazy, crazy stuff goes on. Well, why did I yeah. get on that topic? I don't know why I got on that topic. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. Well, I hope they do reprint it because I think Rallying the Really Human Things is a lovely book. It's very good, especially if you're a teacher or homeschool parent. Yes. Well, um, why? I brought it up because uh, of, of, the, of, of the people who don't understand that story. Now, I will say this. Um, you need to have scripture inside of you to read some of the best fairy tales. I think that's true. Don't have a scripture inside of you. You're going to miss meaning. That, that, uh, that's just a fact. Um, that, that's why it's insane not to teach the Bible in the schools, public and private. Because how can you read the literature of our civilization without having read the Bible? It's madness. Now you have well, professors who teach English literature, who know nothing of the Bible, and what does that make for? Not a very good, good instruction as to the meaning in the text. Of course, they deny there is meaning in the text, so they don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's what goes on. Uh, I want to say one more thing. I don't think every child has the sensibilities uh, for, for fairy tales. I think that every child should be exposed to fairy tales, but I'd grant you that some children may not have the sensibility to enjoy fairy tales entirely. Um, that's, that's, that, that's just a fact, but they might enjoy science fiction, see. Um, so so I, don't, I don't blame the child so much as I blame the adults on this. I, hmm. A parent didn't know how to read the story, really. Part of right. it is how you read it out loud if, or you discuss it. Well, I've noticed that parents and teachers have this insatiable desire to understand and, and get it 
And a lot of George McDonald's, you can't get it or you, you don't have an awakening to it till you get towards the end of the story. And then you have this awakening. And so while they're trying to get through it, if you will, is what they're kind of complaining about, they're struggling. And I think that that is a good reason why your book is so important and why your book would help the parent who wants to understand it enough to be able to read it well and enjoy it with their students. Mm -hmm. And with that, I would like to uh, go into just a little bit of some cautions that you give about reading fairy tales. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of these on um, page 215 of your second edition. You say, I cannot count how many times over the course of my teaching career, I admonished my college students that no matter how much they might suspect that an author is influenced by the Bible, it is a hazardous business to try to track down every allusion to mm -hmm. it in his or her work. And then on page um, 234, you say uh, about the, gold, the king of the Golden River, you say it is after all a fairy tale. For this reason, I say again, we ought to be careful not to read it through strict dogmatic or biblical lenses. It is unlikely a child will do so and the child should not be encouraged to. And I, I really appreciate that you put those warnings in there because I think one of the mistakes that parents and teachers make is they want to then try to overanalyze, get to the meaning, um, and, and find all the biblical references in order to do like a, a more didactic way of teaching these fairy tales to the children rather than just stepping back and letting it be the sonata that it should be, according to George MacDonald, right? The, the narrative, the concrete, uh, fairy tales are about uh, our, in, in our whole body of liter literature, perhaps the most concrete. Uh, they, 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 uh, it's, about, it's about action and character, and it's very concrete. If you, if you begin to abstract, try to abstract meaning from a fairy tale, you'll lose the narrative and you'll lose the story. You may end up with something you're pleased with, like, oh, goody, goody, Matthew such and such is, is, is in this book. But, or, you know, uh, it may be the case. Even, even, in, even in my chapters, I, I don't point to all, all, all that I see that is influenced by the Bible for, for exactly that reason. I don't want to be instructing teachers and parents in how to find biblical biblical illusions in a story and leave the story behind. Right. So, but you are giving them at least some guidance. I think that they, they need uh, they and need want. The they yeah. do. Because it, you don't, you really can't understand character and plot without that background to some extent. So yes, in order to get meaning out of the story, it's a delicate task. And to your point about the Bible, not, not being able to understand fairy tales without having scripture in your heart, if a child is in a school or being homeschooled and the Bible is, is part of that education, part of their life, mm -hmm. the child is going to extrapolate from the fairy tale because they are exposed to yeah, I would say even scripture. a child that isn't exposed to scripture is probably more, ears are more receptive mm -hmm. to meaning in the story than an adult who is not educated in scripture because these stories stand on their own. They don't, you don't need to juxtapose the Bible to them, although that's an interesting exercise in and of itself. But uh, no, there are meanings in these fairy tales that uh, a child will extract who has no knowledge of the Bible. Um, it's not, it, 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 one wishes for them that they one day have that knowledge and go back to these stories and see how much richer they are than what he imagined even at the time that he received them as a child or she received them as a child. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. Um, this is a, um, uh, a fear among the children, I mean, parents and teachers that uh, somehow or other you, you have to, uh, you have to, you, you, uh, you, you have to abstract from the story to get meaning. Now, that's right. not how meaning comes about. Meaning comes about through the action and the characters and what kind of characters they are and follow them, 
follow the stream of the narrative and the rest will sweep over you. It's like jumping in a wave. You'll feel it. I agree. And I want to add to that, I, back to George MacDonald's Fantastic Imagination, which I think is just a fabulous essay. Um, he says, words are living things that may be variously employed to various ends. They can convey a scientific fact or throw a shadow of her child's dream on the heart of a mother. Words are things to put together like the pieces of a dissected map or to arrange like the notes on a stave. And he's, he's right. So when we allow the words to do the life-giving work that they are supposed to do, yes. we can just step back and let them nourish our souls. Right. Exactly. We don't have to pre-digest the food for the child. We let the word do its work, right? There's even a danger in my book that I, I, a parent will take this up and use it as a yes interpretive tool for the child. It's not. I don't intend. I want. Uh, I want parents and teachers to understand these stories at a level uh, that that a child you wouldn't expect a child to, to ha uh, achieve. Although, you know, as I say, all these stories could be taught at other levels of education. It's not just elementary or grammar school. Oh, well, that's why I said these. some of these fairy tales need to be read in middle school and high school and do a seminar. A good teacher should be able to craft a good three questions to throw out for a seminar discussion. Right. I do think, though, that your book is is very, very important for teachers and parents, especially those who struggle with fairy tales, struggle with stories, struggle with this, because like the mother who was bored reading The Princess and the Goblin, I think if she read your book, she would be excited to read The Princess and the Goblin to her children. She would be ready and eager to expose their children to the beauty of, of, of that story. More than likely, that's true. Yeah, and so I, th I think that the work of, of this book, Tending the Heart of Virtue, is is you are tending to the heart of the teacher and to the parent with this book. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about this, this book and, and there's so much more. I mean, I could, we could do a whole podcast just on the wise woman, but we want, I want, I want my listeners to buy the book and read the book and, and embrace the wise woman. Um, you, you have made me want to read it again. And, and now I'm like, okay, wise woman, it's going on my list of books. I have to read every year, right along St. Athanasius on the incarnation. <laughs> These books are just worth we haven't reading. talked about the wise woman, and we've run out of time. We talked a little bit about it. I so, think. Uh, yeah. What would you want to say to our listeners about the importance of the wise woman? Well, I think that uh, contrary to the view of uh, Sendak, uh, where he thinks that this story is bizarre and di disturbed, um, and doesn't give a good example, give good examples for the children to absorb. Uh, he explores the found the the ground groundwork for morality in a way that uh, few fairy tales do, and and, and um, yeah. it's a complicated story. I say it took me three years to write it. I go back and write it. Not didn't spend all my time writing this this particular chapter, but it took a long time, and. Um, it's one of those stories you 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 have to listen to more than more to the, more than most in order to uh, come to some uh, understanding of the profound the profundity and the wisdom of Macdonald on the uh, the sources of morality and how we grow spiritually and morally. Uh, uh, through through the ch challenges that we meet uh, in life. So it's a mm -hmm. great story. It is. Yeah. You ended the book saying that uh, the best way to proceed is neither to be content with what we know, nor to put the story behind us as an unsolvable riddle. Rather, we should turn back to the beginning of the story and read it again and yet again. And I loved that you said that because I literally, the paragraph before that had just been saying it, I've got to read it again. After I finish it, I've got to read it again. And 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 your your chapter on the wise woman actually makes you want to do that. And I think 
it's interesting. A lot of people look at the wise woman as an unsolvable riddle, but I think there's a lot of riddles in it that you solved and it made the story come alive even more for me. Um, the profoundness no. of, of what it means is, is, and I think it's a very important story for parents in terms of understanding uh, how to be better parents. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a lack of, of discipline and obedience. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 and 1 through 4, I think, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, that it will go well with you and that you will live a long life on the earth. I had my children memorize that. And from the parent's perspective, how you help your children become obedient, it matters so much. And I think the the wise woman, for me, when I read it to my children, I read it to them twice when they were preteen. Uh, it helped me to kind of step back as a parent and go, oh, am I hindering my children in their ability to be obedient? You're being so you're like being like the king or, or the shepherd. <laughs> the, yeah, exactly. And I was like, okay, it just helped me as a parent to step back and 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 look at myself and and kind of evaluate how I was parenting. And uh and so it's it's profound. And anyhow, we're gonna end this co amazing conversation, challenging all our listeners to go out, buy the book. It's available now. I just got my copy yesterday, I pre-ordered. And uh, there's an audio version coming out in a few months, right? Yes, I think it'll be out in June. In June, okay. So we, yeah. we'll be watching for that, and we'll announce that when, it, when it's out. Um, and I always end my podcast asking our guest, what book do you wish you had read sooner in your life, or what quote has had a tremendous impact on you? Well, you know, having read my career... <laughs> career is about reading isn't it so it's uh you know what, what how do you answer that i would have to say that i needed lewis's abolition of man when i was in high school and i hadn't read it because i was struggling what what was al already in the culture as a kind of cultural and moral relativism and um i he and subjectivism that he comes after brilliantly in that small little book and uh enables us to some to come know ourselves better and know ourselves in relation to norms that, that uh, define our humanity and uh if we don't abide by those norms we're we turn into apes you know uh mm. as he puts it at one point in in uh what is it prince caspian where Lucy or is imagining what 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 if uh what if uh, human beings were like the creatures that uh, are are not narnian and cannot speak well it would be would be a bad world it would be an ugly world no this uh the abolition of man is brilliant in that regard and i for my own purposes yeah i think i needed that book very early on and i suggest everyone read that book it's 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 a small book it's not an easy book actually agreed because we're we're trapped in exactly what he wants to free us from yeah. mm -hmm. think about it but yeah yeah we had dr lou marcos on our, our podcast early on one of our first episodes might be our first episode uh talking about the abolition of man he's a great uh expert on on that book i believe and uh, and then also perhaps the the C.S. Lewis fictionized version of Abolition. I mean, I was at the Hideous Strength. I think yeah. that Hideous Strength is is sort of a fictionized version of. The Hideous Strength is, yeah, that's that's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I hadn't ever thought of encouraging high school teachers to uh, include Abolition of Man in their in their high school reading, but maybe that's something to think about. Uh, it's not an easy book to teach. I've taught it. Mm -hmm. Not an easy book to teach because m most of my students live in the world of of sub subjectivity and relativism. They assume that they assume that reality is that that's a description of reality. Everything is relative. Everything right. is what I feel is important. And uh, while I might think think this is right or wrong, it's okay if other people don't 
because there's no absolute. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm very blessed to know you and to have you on and to encourage our listeners to dive uh, head first into your new, your new edition. So thank you, vegan. Thank you so much for listening. We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>